welcome to Right Wing Dharma Squads. We are your host, Dharma Kirti, Aura, Kagyu, Storm, and a very special guest whom we are glad to finally have on the program. We've been wanting to have him on since the very first episode, uh, Rhinestone Maharaja, if you want to say hi. Hello, everybody. I'm here, finally. <laughs> um, yeah, we, we connected. We was sort of in the initial planning phases of this whole thing, which is related to today's topic. Of, uh, and we also have another special guest, I suppose, <laughs> of, um, of California Dharma. or uh, which, I mean, I think it's a kind of, um, by no means, a, a something you know, the only uh, that I use that's, a, I, I think, a relatively common phrase in these circles, which is basically just, you know... Um, this kind of stereotype, which is like most or all stereotypes is a stereotype for good reason of a certain kind of typically West Coast um, self-identified Buddhist who is attracted to Buddhism because they think it's trendy, because they think it's exotic, because it, it strikes them as being, you know, like not white, so to speak, you know, in the, in the sense that, um, you know, Christianity is associated uh, with white people. To, to a large extent, that's unfair, of course, and, and one of the more interesting developments as a kind of um, observer of the discourse and how people talk about religion is, you know, uh, Middle Eastern Christians are completely, and, and African Christians too, and so on, are, are completely just uh, invisible to the discourse. It's like they don't exist. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, so so when, when we were sort of throwing around the idea of, you know, maybe you want to do some kind of podcast like this or to have these kind of discussions. Um, I, I had, I don't even remember, uh, RM, how we first came into contact. I think you reached out to me, as I recall. But but anyway, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a fair, it, it, it's what's interesting is the, the more that I've been doing this on, on Twitter and, um, and sort of putting myself out there, the more I've gotten kind of, uh, and obviously it's self-selecting to some extent, but people have reached out and said, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you're doing this. I'm interested in Buddhism or I am Buddhist and I, you know, I'm, I'm not just some kind of brain dead left wing person. Um, and it's comforting and reassuring to see that there are, you know, people who take this tradition seriously and who are not just, you know, doing it in this very superficial way. Um, and, and what I would submit, and this is sort of like what was what prompted this particular um, discussion, which we'll get to in a second, what I would I would submit that really there there is no left wing there's no left Buddhism there that's not Buddhism I mean you you can say like well it's beyond any kind of political dichotomy or the real thing which should be some kind of form of centrism or you know it was a middle way or something and that I, those are serious arguments that I that deserve to be taken seriously and, and we can discuss them maybe in a bit um, and, and that's that much is certainly true but to the extent that one of the ways that you can think about leftism or, or to understand leftism as a as a cultural intellectual political phenomenon is as a kind of basically just a, a egalitarianism a strict egalitarianism that is completely incompatible with with the dharma there is the dharma is not egalitarian at all and and so there are, i would i would really i would really strongly put it out there that there are there is no such thing as a left-wing buddhist that is a contradiction in terms but i'm curious what you all have to say i'd say part of the problem is that there's a mistake going on in their minds between does the dharma apply to everyone? Yes. Is it? Uh, does it think everyone is exactly the same? No. Uh, and that's that's where the mistake starts a lot of the time, for sure. And then you know, like we've said before, a huge part of the problem is 
the 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 pop superficial image of of the dharma is like oh it's peaceful man and you just like you chill out and like let go what bothers you and that kind of plays right into what they already think there's no there's no digging deeper into it it's just a uh, it, it gives us is that what i think kagu said one time it gives a spiritual veneer to what they already think yeah, and I, I, it definitely, I, I think it part of it, it, it is like designed as a way to basically, yeah, like you said, give a spiritual veneer to their pre-existing leftist worldview. And part of why they're able to do it is, I mean, we're still kind of trapped by this 19th century interpretation of Buddhism by some European or Orientalists who were basically saying, oh, yeah, this is just essentially like the, the this is the related to Hinduism as Protestantism is to Catholicism. It's this reform movement that's egalitarian and against the old hierarchical caste model. It's not actually true, but this is the way it was promoted. And unfortunately, we still haven't really broken away from this particular worldview. Yeah, I was tweeting about that <clears throat> yesterday, in fact. I found an interesting passage uh, in a, an old history book about... Uh, about this very thing, and it it, it opposed uh, uh, the Buddha to the Brahmanical, the supposed Brahmanical theocracy, which is hierarchical and caste-based. And um, it said that, what's this quote here? Mm, Gotama was destroying Brahmanism by substituting the equality of all men before the moral law for the equality of, uh, for the principle of caste, which is uh, complete nonsense, but, that's basically the Protestant Buddhism out of which the whole the whole thing originated. Yeah, the whole leftist uh, Buddhist, Buddhist RM meme. Or, or Kagyu or any, I mean, I know because it's, it's, it kind of is more in the Indic context. Are you familiar with, um, I think it was, there was this scholar, uh, Gregory Chopin had an article. I mean, it's like 20, 30 years old now or something. It's very, but it's called Protestant Presuppositions in the Study of Buddhist Archaeology, I believe. God, no, I'm not familiar. Uh, yeah, with that. I've not read that. I'll, we'll link it in the show notes. It's a great just kind of class. I think every anyone who's interested in Buddhism really should read this article because basically what he does, and he is like, um, he is a Marxist, like a kind of dialectical materialist, old school Marxist guy. Um, and, and he's very interested in material culture, which is um, one of the kind of main um, thrusts of his critique is that part of what it means when he talks about Protestant presuppositions and the way in which there's this kind of um, in the in the West, but specific really mainly the United States, the, the way we, we interpret everything through a Protestant frame. One of the main ways in which that frame operates is by privileging texts over material culture. Now, I, I think mm -hmm. it goes a little bit too far. I think I mean, Buddhism is very heavily a textual culture, and a lot of that material culture is still like remains of texts and remains of recitations of texts and like, you know, donation inscriptions of like this person paid so and so, you know, monks or nuns to like recite these texts. I mean, there's a, a lot of stuff like that. But the but the overall point, I think, is well taken. And, and one of the main things that he's getting at is precisely this idea of like, that when, when you're what you're doing when Part of what you're doing when you're doing this Protestant move of privileging the text over everything else is you're saying, like, well, the original pure religion resides in the text. This, like, especially like these older, you know, like the the Pali canon, in in a, in a sense, very similar to what um, Julius Evola was doing, like we discussed in in our series on on the doctrine of awakening, which Evola did not make up at all. I mean, the early 20th century. 
scholars and even 19th century scholars of, of Buddhism like very much had a similar idea. Like uh, I think Etienne Lamotte in his History of Indian Buddhism, um, you know, uh, had this same thing of like, oh, it's just, you know, the, the, the Buddha taught this kind of pure, rational, you know, relig- quote unquote religion, which is very much like the Protestant sense of religion, some kind of pure experience. I mean, this connects also to like... Uh, 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 Schopenhauer and and uh, who's the oh man I forget the guy anyway it doesn't matter point is this like the, or, sorry you you, were, you didn't mean Olcott by any chance did you or, Olcott he's, too he's I mean later. Yeah, yeah I mean he was later but it's the same it's a similar kind of thing no I was thinking of uh not Schiller one of these German romantic guys uh, Schleiermacher Schleiermacher who who for whom like Schleiermacher thinks of religion as this kind of German Protestant theologian type guy and he's trying to justify religion on the basis of like religion what religion is fundamentally is this like pure experience of pure subjectivity and pure dependence upon god um and everything else all the texts all this other stuff i mean that to the extent that they contain that that's religion but all these other kind of ritual practices and all this other kind of stuff that's like you know secondary or tertiary or parasitic or not really real religion um and that view heavily informed just absolutely i mean it's informed our culture for 200 years and then in in a lot of ways that is kind of the the heresy at the heart of the so-called enlightenment um but it's also the way in which we interpreted for a long time the buddhist tradition and i i think that's what's really going on in um when we see this this guy that we're going to get to in a second this uh what is his name mark taft uh when when you see these 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 idiots run around and try to say that like oh buddhism can be you know buddhism is just it's an experience that like perfectly accords with contemporary left wing politics like that's that's what that's all about it's 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 just reiterating this history of the protestant reformation in this new context it's just this protestant borg i know we like to joke about like you know oh it's all the calvinists but but in a sense it kind of is um I, i'm going all over the place I'm, I'm talking too much what i'm curious what you all have to say yeah well um the the another way to phrase it that i'm sure we've said before on this show is the idea that something is good to the degree that it conforms with uh, modern Western egalitarian atheist ideas, and to the degree that it doesn't conform to those ideas, then it either gets attacked for that or it gets uh, sort of hand waved away. Like, like for example, for these uh, California Buddhists and stuff, assuming that they're relatively sympathetic to Buddhism as a concept, at least as they understand it. To the degree that they can find teachings that fit into their pre-existing ideas and they say, isn't this wonderful? And to the degree that they find stuff that's old-fashioned or, or or doesn't fit into their worldview, they're just like, well, that was a long time ago and the Buddha didn't really know very well and, and we, we have to forgive him for his time. Just, you know, people do the same thing with Shakespeare, for example. When they, they love something in Shakespeare, they're like, wow, look how look how... You know, I can turn this into an idea that somebody in 2019 would have. Shakespeare was a genius. Then there's something that somebody in, uh, you know, 1603 would have, and they go, oh, well, that he's just a product of his times. Um, and, you know, the logical fallacy in that is apparent right on the surface, hopefully, when you say that, which is why are the ideas from 1603 or, say, 603, why is that not the... Uh, the measurement and instead of the 2019 ideas and you know the re- answer is just sort of a shrug and something about the word progress but there's no logical you know meaning behind any of that so it really comes down to 
how unexamined people's priors are. And this is not something that's, you know, unique to Buddhism at all. Um, and since this is a podcast about Buddhism, we're addressing it. But it's really just yet another flowering of this basic mistake that people make again and again and again um, in modern times, which is to, which is to you know, preference and privilege um, ideas that you have now. And, <laughs> you know, things change so fast now on like the woke left, you know, ideas that Barack Obama promulgated in like 2015 are now considered like Stone Age ideas, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, I, I'm not thinking. Yeah, this whole thing is very clear. I mean, you know, we, we have one of the originators of um, graph Twitter, hashtag graph Twitter, you know, here on the on the program, and we're very grateful for that. And and, and yeah, I think one of the I mean, the graph, um, for those of you who may not know, are is, you know, this this graph showing sort of the interrelationship between essentially resource production, resource consumption, births and deaths. And 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 essentially, it just demonstrates the Un unsustainability like the physical unsustainability of our current civilizational trajectory and and i think it is very obvious you know clearly it's unsustainable even in purely physical terms but um I, I think another way to look at the graph or certainly one of the ways in which i look at the graph is essentially as like yeah we're accelerate i mean it, it's we're not just physically unsustainable we are like spiritually unsustainable or personally unsustainable our, our society we are we're you know our society is coming apart at the seams precisely because we're accelerating towards this like i don't even know what at a faster and faster rate i think it's not just that we're accelerating it's that the rate of acceleration the the jerk so to speak is is uh increasing as well and and yeah so so how can you even try to keep up this is i think one of the main reasons why um to put it maybe for a second in a christian context you know the the churches that are doing the worst are the ones that try to to keep up with every latest fashion trend like the 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 mainstream mainline protestant churches the 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 episcopalians and so on whoever who are who are trying to like stay woke and put the rainbow flags like their pews are empty you know the only area where there's any growth or even just stability are the places where um where they're maintaining some form of orthodoxy and in, in continuity with tradition in the past and that's to me that's just very clearly not an accident and and so yeah i mean part of it, you know there's a complicated historical interaction in the case of buddhism um where like there's reasons why it got associated with all these kinds of things and and part of what i'm doing what we're doing is is to disassociate them um but the the blunt reality is if if, if all you're doing is is left-wing politics like people could get that at you know, at their local Antifa meeting or whatever. You don't need to go meditate in in, in a sangha and like pledge allegiance. Yeah. Turn on the turn on the television. You yeah. know, I mean, well, <laughs> this is the reason why the so-called uh, mainline Protestant denominations went into decline because um, once they basically just started um, creating the the uh, secular moral culture, uh, there was no need for them anybody to go to church anymore. So <laughs> they just all anyone who remained Christian became evangelical or or uh, went with more conservative denominations for the most part. I guess there's still some liberal congregations around, but yeah, that's a hundred percent right. And I've told this anecdote on this show before, but it's been a while. Just that there's a beautiful old Episcopal church um, in Seattle that has uh, that that has just basically empty pews on Sunday morning, and they give. Um, you know, they basically give people lectures on like, you know, white guilt and stuff 
on, on Sunday morning and there's nobody in there except some little old ladies who look confused. And, <laughs> oh man, and, that is so sad. <laughs> and some like homosexuals and lesbians, seriously. Um, just a few, like four. Um, and then on Sunday night, once a month, they do even song and they turn off the lights and they light the candles and they sing traditional songs from hundreds of years ago in England. Uh, and they, they, they don't add in any sermons or any pause. It's just a sung musical uh, service, and it is packed to the gills. It is abs- you, There's nowhere to sit. People have to sit in the aisles, and they do that once a month, and it's just astonishing to me that they don't put two and two together, what people are really hungry for. I'll tell you what's going on, and I'm going to connect this back to the graph stuff. It's that uh, essentially like woke intersectional leftism it's kind of like uh, it's like a cybernetic product of capital. It's like the uh, one of the main ideological components, right? And so, as Maharaja was saying, you know, if you if you if you are a woke intersectional leftist person, then that's going to be your operating system for everything. And you know, you don't need church anymore because that's what creates your morality. And so, you you know, if you turn everything into woke leftism church, everywhere is church, and so nothing is church. And that's how it relates. Yep. No, I think that's absolutely Back right. To that, you know, yeah. you know, the the um the material comfort that's everywhere is kind of the same thing as the ideological comfort that people get from uh, leftism. You know, it, you it allows you to feel better about your insecurities. That's what it does. You know, everyone is equal. Everyone is good. Uh, it, there's no ugly and beautiful. Everything's beautiful, which really means nothing is beautiful. And so there's there's no there's no connection, right? So. Part of the reason um, that industrial society, it's, you know, you've seen, if you look around you, you can see, you know, we've got uh, the decline of the physical health and beauty of people is is, is down, uh, especially at, as the aggregate, you know, in the abstract. Like if we look at everyone, your average person is more unhealthy, more overweight. They might live longer and have better cures for their illnesses, but the, the state they're living in is a much lower quality, and it's because they're not being exposed to sort of the natural selectors and the natural drivers of, of physical and spiritual fitness, like nature, like getting sick, like having to work and walk and move and sweat and be exposed to the elements. And so like the graph, you know, what you're looking at with the graph is when does this come to a head? When is this no longer sustainable and what are the consequences going to be? Well, that it's, it applies just as much to, to the woke intersectional leftism. You know, it's, at a certain point, it's going to be so everywhere. It's going to be completely dead, and, and already, you know, everybody's tired of it. And so, you know, why is that church full on the trad night and nobody else is there? You know, no one's there on the regular days. Well, because it's not, it's not different on the regular days. People want to to get out of that all encompassing, you know, techno capital bubble, and that's you know one one of the most powerful ways to do it is to do something traditional like that. I mean, really turning the lights off, lighting the candles, and singing ancient hymns. Everybody, even people that you know on paper hate that stuff, they're hungry for that. They're hungry for that, and and that's why it's such a mistake to to turn the Dharma into just another uh, just another woke leftist church, right? Because it, you you remove everything from it that's powerful, and you just make it more of the same. I have a question. Do you think that they're? Do you think it? I mean, I guess to some extent it's arbitrary, and who knows? But it's. To me, it's less that they're like even trying to turn the Dharma, like they're not even starting from the Dharma and turning it into something else. They like have this thing already in their minds and then and then they're like attracted to the Dharma or what they, you know, this word Dharma, or Buddhism or whatever for whatever reason or number of reasons. And then, you know, they sort of like try to fit 
that into their pre <laughs> pre um pre existing notion. Uh, for for example, I had a there was an article that was forwarded to me. Um, it's a recent publication on on Eon. Uh, I forget the. Uh, I want to give credit where it's due. Unconscious Abyss uh, forwarded to me this article on Eon. How Mar- Marxism and Buddhism. Uh, life is suffering whether you sit under a Bodhi tree or stand with the workers. But do the two schools agree on the remedy? <laughs> and uh, the the author Adrian Kreutz, which is an interesting surname, uh, <laughs> has basically his his uh, his thesis here is that um, because Marxism is uh, egalitarian and, and because the Dalai Lama. Uh, you know, has expressed some some um, support for Marxist economic ideas in the past, and because there's this idea of diagnosis and treatment, um, that you know we can like this is what is this that that the that the ideal Buddhist society would be Marxist to the extent that it's uh-huh. uh, interconnected and and ter- I don't know tyrannical in a certain sense. I don't really. He kind of loses the plot, but but it becomes. I mean, yeah, you don't say, huh? <laughs> I, would, I would say that the ideal Buddhist society would have no need of Marxism because it's the ideal Buddhist society. I mean, that's you're putting a hat on top of a hat at that point. You're, you're, the problems go away with the Buddhism. You don't need the Marxism too. Um, let me put it to you this way, right? Because you're talking about how they have this preconceived notion and they just sort of like add the dharma to it rather than actually starting from the dharma. The point I, I was making with the little rant earlier is that. The, the leftist mindset is exactly like the capital mindset, the techno-capital mindset. They're really the same thing. So so if you're techno-capital, you know, neoliberal capitalism under under the industrial uh, technological system, right, and there's a threat to you, what do you do? Okay, so like hardcore Marxist-Leninist communism is a threat to techno-capital. So what it does is it goes into the, techno, into the uh, Marxist-Leninist ideology and it finds the things it can use and it uses that against the dangerous parts. So here's an example, right? Like someone like Monsanto, right? Evil, terrible corporation, ruining the environment, just uh, all around shitty, right? What they do is they start turning their logo into a rainbow and hiring trans and gay and, and POC people. And so this purchases them an indulgence to where uh, people who aren't fooled by that, who are the minority of the leftists, they, they, they can't fight Monsanto because now Monsanto has bought indulgences. So that's really the same thing they do here. They say, all right, so Buddhism is this is this traditional, hierarchical, um, aesthetic, warrior-like spiritual tradition. I'm going to take the parts of that that I can use and just add them to my to my thing. Does that make sense? They cut the thing up and use it against itself, taking only what they need. Storm, uh, I, I totally agree uh, with the way that you put that. Um, I think that's exactly right, and that's a that's a sophisticated uh take on on techno capitalism um and and huh, as an aside there at least there used to be parts of academia that would make that kind of um uh, critique you know we've brought up Deleuze and Guattari on this show before and I, I do find those kinds of critiques very interesting um but they definitely get drowned out uh because well the same process happens to those critiques right they got <laughs> the parts that can be adapted to the system are adapted and the rest is sort of either ignored or suppressed or whatever I wanted to bring up, I wanted to get a little specific um, about, you know, what are we talking about with this the California Dharma thing? Um, because we sort of launched into a critique of what's wrong with it, but maybe we could try to pin down a little bit of what it is at the risk of, I what I don't want to do 
personally is I don't want it to turn on like a dog pile on this or that particular writer. But what I did do, just for giggles, um, I went to Amazon and just looked up the best sellers under their category for Buddhism and just see like what are people Oh no 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 do... no 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 Oh no no yeah. no, no no Are you ready for this? <laughs> oh, no 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 <laughs> This is going <good. laughs> Okay. <laughs> the art of motorcycle maintenance. That's on there baby. That is on first there. Oh my ever written. Throw it yeah. in the trash. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't feel quite so strongly on it but uh yeah. Um so there's um Eckhart Tolle. Oh god. There's Was that under yeah, He doesn't even like Claim to be Buddhist. Yep. I mean, he's not like the. Oh man, whatever. Oh, Dharma Kirti, I've got a long way to go. You're gonna have to. Like, he's like, he must be near the. T- I mean, he's not even like that bad. It's number one. Like, it's yeah. number one. Yeah. It's number one. The All Power right, of whatever. Now by Eckhart Tolle. Okay. Number two is My Spiritual Journey by the Dalai Lama. Then right. we've got a Marie a Marie Kondo book. Okay. Uh, then the Dalai Lama again with Desmond Tutu. What? Um, oh, no. Yeah. Then a Thich Nhat Hanh, Marie Kondo again. I want to talk about Thich Nhat later. Sorry, yeah, go on. But yeah, Thich Nhat yeah. Hanh is an interesting kind of in-between case. Sorry, go on. Yeah, I like Thich Nhat Hanh yeah. personally. He, he, it, I understand why he's associated with these people. Yeah. Uh, Pema Chodron, Tara Brock. I guess this oh. woman must be really popular because she's on here like 12 times. Is that – did she do – what was it? Uh, it's called Radical, Radical Acceptance. Radical Acceptance. Yeah, I know. Oh, God. Yeah. And Tara I think, Brock, I think, PhD, I think by has, the way. PhD oh, on all that, of her books. All the credentials. I'm sure – I, I, I believe that last name is also suspicious, but I'm not 100% yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, just look at her picture. Yeah. Uh, may, <laughs> um, maybe y'all can fill me in because I uh, logged out for a second to try to fix my issues. Yeah, what, you know what's what the I, context? You, by the way, you sound, you sound way better now, first of okay, all. Okay, good. Second of all, um, I, I decided I want to kind of pin down what we mean by this California Dharma stuff instead of talking okay. in abstract. So I am torturing – the rest of the group uh by reading what is the best sellers <laughs> under uh under buddhism uh on amazon so i'll speed Ooh, through the rest Lord. just to give okay. it yeah so we're at number nine right now that's Thich Han, the dalai lama archbisman tutu deepak chopra marie kondo again tara like, brock again half of these people aren't Thich even Nhat, buddhist deepak Thich Nhat chopra. Han again Pema Chodron, john kabat zinn again Zen yeah, in the know, Art of Mo- know, Motorcycle that, that last Maintenance. Name, for those who do not know, John Cabot's, I, and this is where one of the places I wanted to go with this. Sorry, why don't you finish first, but then we'll get to... Yeah, yeah, soon. yeah. Uh, Eckhart Tolle again. Uh, Chris Prentice, Robert Wright. I don't know these people. Um, Noah Levine. Thich Nhat Hanh again. The <laughs> Levine, Dalai Lama you don't again. Say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Emma Chodron again. Persig again. So I'll stop there. Yeah. These, these are the best-selling books under Buddhism. And again, you know... <laughs> I'll let you talk. I mean, the point is, the point is, oh, these aren't Buddhism. Like, yes, that's the point. Yeah. They are, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, John Kabat-Zinn is an interesting. So, first of all, that that's not just like that. I mean, you know, yeah, that's a suspicious last name. Let's say. Um, what, what's interesting about Kabat-Zinn, though, is like he also, in particular, like I don't even think he. Again, I don't think he identifies as Buddhist, and and I think that that is actually, I think his whole thing is particularly pernicious because. He, he, his, again, it goes back to, in a certain sense, this Protestant idea, which then maybe people can make on their own the connection between, like, what do suspicious last names have to do with certain kinds of Protestant ideas? Um, the, the idea with him is like, this is where, if you, the word mindfulness, a lot of this, all this stuff of mindfulness movement, he, he is one of the main architects of that. Um, mindfulness based stress reduction, as it's called, is like his, baby and it's basically like this it's it's sort of a, a decontextualized secularized 
Vipassana-ish. Like, devoid of goal, devoid of context, devoid of really anything that makes it more meaningful than... To get to connect back to, I think, Storm's extremely trenchant and relevant critique, um, in just the same way that putting a rainbow flag and hiring a a whatever sexual minority, so to speak, uh, is is an indulgence for giant global homo you know corporations that are wrecking everything. Um, the the like the the mindfulness thing is 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 just it, it's a it's another arm of techno capital because what you're doing is you're making people like more effective workers less stressed out workers you're taking your workforce and you're processing them through this thing that's like oh well you can work 18 hours a day in in a cubicle and then go home to your bug farm in a 33rd floor apartment and sleep in your pod and eat maggot sausage um and you'll be <laughs> fine with it because you know you have mindfulness and so it's like yeah, there, there's no there's no situation where you think is my employer is he doing right action am i being yeah. treated as i should be there is no room for critique the, the the subtext of the mindfulness thing is it's always a problem with your attitude it's always a problem with your attitude you're not mindful enough that's why you're stressed out it has nothing to do with uh the pot and eating maggots and and all that it, none of that that would all be fine it's actually you that are the problem there's no uh, it's untempered by by uh, practical truths you know what i mean it's it's just a it's like a management technique exactly it's, it's a management technique it's a techno capital management a, technique it's into it's like a massage you know it's it's friday night uh a bottle of wine and stranger things uh marathon right and then uh saturday morning i'm feeling spiritual man so i'm gonna do a little mindfulness you know and, and ring some bells and you know I don't even think they're ringing bells i i i mean no, that, would be, right. that would be an improvement <laughs> frankly that's right that's true uh, <laughs> Yeah, I I um I have nothing but disdain, honestly. For for I mean, it's not to say like my quote unquote mindfulness is bad or that you should not do it or something, but but the idea that you're gonna do this in a divorced way. I mean, I, again, like there's a kind of like to be fair, you there is an argument to be made that you know, well, um maybe you reach people where they are, and if they don't have any uh, spiritual beliefs or something, or they but but I don't actually think that works in the long run. I think I think. You end up with people like Stephen Batchelor, this whole kind of like Buddhist atheism thing, which is basically just idiotic Reddit tier nonsense, um, it, completely divorced. And, and, and it's not even, it, it doesn't work as philosophy. It doesn't work as Buddhism. It doesn't work as anything except, you know, flattering people's self, um, self con concept, self conception as, you know, uh, oh, I am a sophisticated consumer of product and ideology in you know current year and, and well, that, you, can, sorry, you can reach yeah you can reach people where they are but i mean they, sure there's an argument for that but you can't you gotta lead them somewhere you can't just yeah. give them mindfulness and that's it that's not help where i mean what's the point of reaching them if that's all you do yeah and 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 especially when as we see as is often the case so so um as another example, and thank you for that, Aura. That was extremely illuminating um, and depressing. <laughs> but, uh, what what's what's uh, sparked this discussion, or what made me want to have this? I mean, this is a sort of ongoing subtext, I think, for a lot of what we do, and I'm sure it's a well that we will return to again. Um, but what sparked this was there was this very interesting interaction with this very interesting individual who I don't, you know, uh, Taft is not in and of itself a suspicious last name, but um, I have my questions for reasons of 
like other things he said, but there's this guy on Twitter, Ort Cloud Atlas, uh, Michael Taft, who has a a very very funny website called Deconstructing Yourself. I, I highly suggest that everyone, if you are in the mood for a laugh, that you visit this place. Um, and he said something uh, that I think is is like it was you know again he's uh, not wrong. Um, in response to someone who said at meaningness who said every form of buddhism throughout history is densely interwoven with secular power agendas unless you know the history of who was using which doctrines to support what ruler you cannot understand the religion accurately now i imagine that was intended as some as a kind of critique i i actually think that um first of all that's true and and second of all i mean as, as if you want to understand yeah if you want to understand like internal tibetan disputes about like this very highfalutin uh, stuff about like you know the nature of emptiness and and while there are like intellectual debates to be had on that point it's also a fact that those highfalutin debates about the nature of emptiness like like the people on one side were basically supported by one king and people on the other side were supported by another yeah, king. yeah. it's it's true but it's also like as a general statement it's true in a very trivial sense and that that's true of any human yes, for institution sure. So, so in response to this, Michael Taft says, or the subculture of fascist Buddhism that is forming in the U.S. today, people don't realize that historically and, world, and worldwide, right-wing dharma is the norm. Now, again, okay, so first of all, where's the lie? Right, like that, that's correct. And that's why we're, and that's part of why I'm, you know, why we're putting, I'm calling our, you know, it's a kind of funny, you know, play on the right-wing squad thing um, for us to call ourselves right-wing dharma squads. Um, but, but, you know, for, for Mr. Taft, this was some kind of, uh, of a critique, I guess, probably of us. And I mean, he, us here on this program, this, this very podcast specifically, I think that's, I think he had us in mind when he was, was talking about this. Um, but, you know, if, if you look at, if you look at his website, right, this is like his flagship product. He has a podcast. He describes himself as, uh, what does he say? We, we, uh, Mike, let me read out his bio for a second. He says, Michael W. Taft is a maverick meditation teacher, best-selling author and podcaster. As a mindfulness coach, he specializes in secular science-based, mi science-based uh -huh. mindfulness training in retreats, groups, corporate settings, and one-on-one -on -one sessions. Michael is the author of several books, including the best-selling The Mindful Geek, Non-Dualism, A Brief History of a Timeless Concept, and Ego, which he co-authored, as well as the editor of Blah Blah Blah. He has often taught meditation at Google, worked on curriculum development for something, and is currently core faculty at Wisdom Labs in San Francisco. We should look that up sometime, I'm sure it'd be a hoot. Uh, Michael is also a featured teacher on the Simple Habit app and an official advisor to the Therapeutic Neuroscience Lab. From Zen temples in Japan to yogi caves in India, Michael has been meditating for over 35 years and has extensive experience in both Buddhist Vipassana and Hindu Tantric practice. Michael is a senior facilitator at blah, blah, blah. I mean, you get the idea. Oh, and then the bottom, of course, has a, has a pitch. Michael is available to speak or teach at your corporation, company, conference, retreat center, or meditation group. He also teaches mindfulness meditation one-on-one -on -one to leaders and other individuals. Now, I don't mean to rag on this particular individual even though he treated us very nastily and is, is clearly just a fraud. Um, like, he, he is not the problem. The problem is the culture that enables someone who, you'll notice, uh, there is no, like, he was authorized to teach the Dharma or med even just meditate or whatever by such and such a teacher. There's no, like, oh, you know, he was at some monastery 
for X number of years and venerable so-and-so. There's none of that. There's no authorization here. There's no... Uh, he, there's, doesn't teach, he doesn't teach the Dharma. He teaches... Right. He the sanitized something uh, to like corporate. He teaches something at Google, like he like whatever yeah. it is that Google wants money. its for employees money. to like for money for mo for money. And it's very clear. I mean, the whole thing is like he has these books, buy these books. He teaches these things, buy these things. He can if you want one on one, you know, contact him. He'll be happy to teach it to you over Skype or whatever. Maybe you can fly out. Maybe you can fly him out to to, I mean, to who, visit you. By definition, he's a grifter. Then yes, yeah, yeah he's, he's a grifter, grifter and it seems he's a pretty good one too. Oh, clearly, clearly very successful at the look. I don't begrudge anyone, you know, their 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 success in whatever dimension. You know, I, I think this is an important you know, as a side note. Um, I I've never been particularly jealous. I mean, I have pro I have many flaws. Um, jealousy was not usually one of the the worst ones for me. But there's a, there's a very simple trick um, that I learned, you know, and I think that it's very good. Which is if you ever find yourself feeling like jealous or envious of someone's success or whatever, just be like, I'm happy that they have that. Just be like genuinely be like, you know, I'm glad I'm I'm glad for this person. And so, yeah, I'm glad that he has experienced this um, financial success or whatever in, in this particular regard. That's great. Uh, it is, however, like not great that he's doing it by sh by selling some very strange hybrid concept of like, I mean, again, he doesn't even really, I mean, he, he calls himself a meditation teacher. But elsewhere on Twitter, he's called himself like a Buddhist, quote unquote, use the, the phrase Buddhist teacher. Uh, I, I don't know exactly what that's about, um, but but he's clearly not a Buddhist teacher. He's clearly just not, and and none of these people are, and uh, yeah. So that that's um, that. I mean, that's all I have to say for for this for the moment. Let, let me well, say, let me say this right here. Who 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 is doing the the damage here? Who is who is the bad fella here? Is it is it us having conversations? On the internet, on the internet, which are actually respectful and and frank and and based in the text and history, or is it some guy who is essentially like a grifter eunuch for for neoliberal techno capital? I mean, if you're given your little mindless talks at Google, I mean, that's like you know you're in the court of the emperor. What what is more evil than Google? And there you are helping them relax. I mean, do you see what I'm saying? Like we're <laughs> he he's this is an evil thing. Being being the handmaiden to these innocents. Oh, absolutely. I I, I don't. I, I guess I just. Um, to me, it's like a separate question. Like, do I feel bad? Like, it's like if someone achieves great things by evil means. Like, is that you know? I mean, I feel sorry for him. I guess is the main thing. I, it's not that I begrudge him anything. It's just. And, and again, it's not. It's not just him. The the problem is a corporate culture that has latched onto mindfulness as something that is makes for a more pliant and effective workforce without any regard to like the actual well-being of that workforce um sorry go on listen it's it's just the, it's the it's the like sophisticated new age uh silicon valley friendly version of a televangelist a crooked televangelist who who preaches you know quote unquote christianity to get old ladies to send in their money so he can personally enrich himself there's no difference it's just that he's he's probably upscale. He probably charges a lot more, you know, because he's got more expensive clients. That actually is kind of an interesting thing about the whole California Dharma phenomenon. You can almost look at it as the other side of the coin to the Joel Osteen. I mean, insofar as Joel Osteen is like religion for is like really easy access religion for, say, a certain kind, like let's say the Red Tribe of America. California Dharma does the same thing for the other side. It's more of a cultural phenomenon with no real challenge to it no real um concept of 
anything, any kind of higher values. It's just easy access, maybe morally therapeutic deism on a certain level. The, the equivalent of that for the leftist. And I'll yeah, say I think that, that, that what he's teaching is meditation. And especially in Zen, like you'll hear a lot of time in the cons, you'll hear someone say something and like Yunmin says this a lot, Joshu says this a lot. They'll say, oh, that's just something you can learn on the long bench, meaning the meditation bench. Meditation isn't it. You need yeah. awakening. That's right. You can sell all the meditation <laughs> you want in the world. Well, yeah. And, and in the in the Mahamudra context, like there's four yogas you could say of Mahamudra, at least in the Tibetan thing. And the last one, the last sort of aspect of of proper ultimate meditation is is specifically called non-meditation. Like if, if it's conceptualized or even just engage, like if, if, if what you're doing is meditation, if there's this sense of I am meditating or whatever, like that's not it. <laughs> So, yeah. so I, yeah, sorry, go on. Well, I, it's, I like um, Storm's hot take that this is evil um, because it is, it's quite a hot take, you know, because the, there's the flip side to it of what you were saying, DK, before about, yeah, I don't begrudge people their success and, and things. And one thing, you know, when I did my Amazon thing, I was like, well, who is this Tara Brock person? And I clicked on her best-selling book and looked at the reviews. And from one perspective, you know, you can, you can sort of say, well, what's the harm in this? You know, you've got re these five-star reviews saying this book is life-changing for me. It really made me feel good, um, revolutionized how I handle my emotions. The writing is beautiful. This is a practical, well-written, generous-hearted, hopeful book. I strongly recommend the book, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, we can sort of, <laughs> you know, qu question the spiritual depth or whatever of these anonymous strangers without ever having met them. I think that's the instinct, you know, but then another on another point, and I'm not necessarily making this point, I'm just playing devil's advocate a little bit, um, maybe for our listeners too, uh, is, is like, well, you know, what's so wrong with that? Like, yeah, it's not the, you know, it's not the, the hardcore sutras or something, but like, so what? You know, right. like, I, is it healthy? Well, the reason, Sorry, go on. I'll, I'll, I'll I mean, respond in a second. The reason I would say it's easy to question this person's spiritual depth is if you go through his website, yeah, that's you'll find this incredibly entertaining thing about mindfulness. Oh, that's sex. okay. That's what I was about to go okay, next. Go for it. Do you mind if I, because I have it pulled no, up. Go for it. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, so here, and this is to be fair. Now, this isn't this, this gentleman himself. This is someone else who I guess is a part of his organization in some way. Uh, her name is Jessica Graham. Um, and she says, my, she begins by, by saying, mindful sex, feeling it. She says, I've always been a very sexual person. I'm the one who finds a way to work sex into pretty much any conversation. I like great sex scenes. I like blah, blah, blah. I like occasionally little porn. My sex life has always been important to me. But most of my sexually active years, I was selling myself and my partner short. Once I started to learn to really feel the sensations of sex, however, I discovered a whole new me. The first thing I recommend for anyone looking to enhance their sex life is to take up a daily mindfulness meditation practice. And, and basically, she ends up connecting this. Uh, she says, uh, where is this? Mindful sex, the threesome. Today, I like to show up for everything, including my sex life, as the result of my 10 minutes a day mindfulness meditation practice. And let me tell you, fully experiencing a threesome is way better than drunkenly fumbling through one. So, I mean, like, okay, so she used to drunkenly fumble through threesomes. Now she discovered mindfulness, and she's fully experiencing the threesomes, and that's just great. Uh, mindfulness can expand in all directions of life, including new sexual adventures. The more you bring your practice into every aspect of your day, the more you have the potential to lead an awakened life. What does that even mean? 
uh what the fuck does that even mean uh she, she continues further down um mindful sex how to feel clean while being dirty just because you meditate doesn't mean you can't enjoy a rough bdsm scene or a book of erotic photography because you meditate you'll be able to enjoy porn more and with less attachment if porn is triggering for you i still invite you to read this article stay in touch with your thoughts and emotional sensations no one says you have to watch this kind of content but having an aversion to it can create unnecessary suffering for yourself i feel like i missed this part okay so there's something wrong with you if you have like an aversion to pornography like that means you're not mindful enough i i'm i, I just i'm sorry it I'm is like, it is a little mind-blowing you know the, it, it, like like many like like many things i think we said this right on episode one the 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 best lies have an element of truth to them uh dk on that one episode that you missed we were talking about what is our daily like when a daily life like when we are meditating a lot and we were talking about the you know how odd it is and you just kind of feel things a little bit more and you you notice things a little bit more and storm uh even said uh in a very demure way said uh that his skill as a husband increases um when but you know that's not why he's meditating of course but uh right that, that he did notice it's that. true of course it's true it can't not dharma makes your life better every aspect of your life and if it's like proper for your life to get better specifically in terms of like that or more money or whatever it will happen like you're, you should be happier and more successful as a result of your dharma practice if you're not you're not practicing correctly basic, absolutely I, basic point i, I want to I want to get back to the threesomes and porn thing. <laughs> please, please. <laughs> I thought it would be good to kind of juxtapose that that with what uh, Zapatro Rinpoche says in Words of My it's Perfect a very Teacher. Important, like one of the most important 19th century Tibetan masters for those in our Yeah. Uh, so the gravest sexual misconduct is that of leading other people to break their vows. Sexual misconduct also includes acts associated with particular persons, places, and circumstances, masturbation, sexual relations with a person who is married or committed to someone else, or with a person who is free but in broad daylight during observation of a one-day vow during illness, distress, pregnancy, bereavement, menstruation, or recovering... Uh, uh, recovery from childbirth in a place where the physical representations of the three jewels are present with one's parents sorry y'all other prohibited family members or with a prepubescent child in the mouth or anus and so on so yeah and and that's like first of all most of that is just common sense and second yeah. and second of all like to me it's like okay notice what's going on here in the absence it, it, it's precisely like you you can make a kind of like intellectual argument that like okay well maybe in some sense you know decontextualization isn't necessarily bad inherently um I, i'm skeptical i think at this point it's very been abundantly proven that like the slippery slope is not a fallacy it's more like an iron law but the, yeah. the, the point is um irrespective of like well i guess on that on that exactly for that reason you the the it's very clear and evident the result of decontextualizing quote unquote mindfulness, whatever that even means to these lunatics, is uh, you know, whatever kind of is trendy, whatever like sat satanic, demonic, pedophilic, God knows what they're up to in San Francisco, um, that that they that they find enjoyable for however long. That's what we're going to like justify our so-called meditation practice in terms of. Um there was a, there was a similar situation. Uh, I, I don't know. You know, those of you who know what I'm talking about will know what I'm talking about. Those of you who don't, it doesn't really matter. But there was uh, recently a a Western 
teacher. He had been sort of formally designated as a Lama who, who was stripped of his title as Lama, primarily uh, by a like traditional Tibetan authority. I mean, like a serious, you know, Tibetan like master. Um, primarily because he, as even though he he was sort of it was he was given Lama as a kind of quasi ceremonial title with the understanding that he would you know continue his education because just you, you have this title doesn't necessarily you know he still has to learn how to do the rituals and he never really learned that. But but in addition, <laughs> in addition to not really learning how to perform all the rituals correctly. Um, and and failing in in various of his you know important things that he needed to do as a as a representative and, and a holder of the tradition, um, he was like leading he was like teaching people to you know uh, there was this thing about Gwyneth Paltrow and the jade egg that she was selling to like put inside your vagina as a woman that this was some kind of, and he was like well you know people. I, I don't, there was some controversy, and I don't want to say speak out of turn, but but basically, like the the the, the from his supporters, this this strip is no longer Lama's like supporters. Their version of events that exonerated him was well, he didn't say that you should put the the jade egg inside your your vagina. He was more like you know, as a part of like various practices, like you know, people are doing this, and maybe you want to do that too. Like this is the level of insanity. That that Western so-called Western Buddhism is on, and again, I mean, I I I'm not like I don't think I'm anybody. I you know I, I really do. I have I have ego about some stuff, but I don't have ego about this. Um, I you know I'm just an asshole with the with a microphone, and and I can't speak for you guys. I mean, we're doing this as a labor of love, not because we think we're like so special or whatever. But I, I do think it's important to get on the record and to have you know some pushback against against this kind of stuff because it's not it 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 very rarely even claims to be buddhism and when it does it's it's like it's rudra it's satanic it's demonic it needs to be um it leads to suffering well yeah the point sure the point of the the point of the practice is to end suffering um for yourself and for others and that's the the teachings on morality uh the teachings on um on meditation on uh on right view on right livelihood on right effort they're they're all designed um, to lead to the to the end of suffering. It, the point is to be happy. It really is. And these things are sold as well. This is you know be yourself. You know this is this is what's going to make you happy and everything. But the but the teaching is that no, it's not. And in fact, it's going to lead to suffering. Um, and you know it's it's it can be complex to see that sometimes like oh you know oh what's the harm and everything but that's the point that's the point of the teachings that's the point of the meditation practice and everything is to clarify the mind and to 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 educate the mind you know in the in the classical sense of you know to educe something uh, from the mind and and to and to show you yeah how how to reach happiness and so you know it's it, it all yeah ugh, it, it all ties back to this it, it, it's just that it's another form of of rebelling against christian morality really i think dharma kirti you've brought this up several times on our podcast and i think it's it's always relevant that that all, all of this leftism stuff is is really a from one perspective can be seen as a as an in, inversion of of christian christianity and you know buddhism is new on the scene in the west and so it's to the degree that there's some old school stuff about buddhism which is a large degree um that can be tied you know like that basic sexual hygiene that um that maharaja was just talking about you know like 
like you said, DK, that a lot of that's just common sense. And, you know, I, I would call it sexual hygiene, like yeah, just like keeping yourself, yeah. you know, just, 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 it doesn't mean repressing yourself or anything. It's just like keeping, keeping it nice and clean and, you know, keeping it good and positive and wholesome. Um, it's not saying, oh, sexuality is not part of being a human. Of course it is. It's a very central part, but like this, this whole need to like use jade eggs and pornography and uh, threesomes drunken or mindful, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's misguided. It's just wrong. It's just, well, you're, they're telling you to do a bunch of stuff that just hurts you and that it's bad for you. It's like just directly instantly right away, bad for you in every way. The people involved in the pornography are exploited, whether they think that or not. It, the whole, it's just absolutely ridiculous, man. It's like telling somebody to, to stab themselves, but, but suffer the pain. Mindful. I mean, come on. I mean, yeah. Yeah, man. Um, I want a quick, quick couple quick uh, things from the chat here. First of all, some very kind words from Christoph Kristofsky. He says, thanks very much for this podcast, guys. You've inspired me to get out of depression and start meditate and read again. Wish you all much health and mental clarity. Christoph, we wish you health and very mental clarity so. too, you. my brother. That is awesome. Uh, Will, Will Helms. Hey, buddy. How's it going? Uh, comments when we were talking about the mindfulness cult. Uh, mindfulness is quietude, self-suppression. And Yogurt uh, with a witty uh, thing. When we, I, think, I think this popped up when we were talking about this guy's business. Um, Buy your way into heaven, Inc. And uh, our readout. <laughs> we got some yikes and what the fuck from, uh, from people about that. I think when you were reading that thing, uh, DK. Yeah, I, yeah. Uh, and uh, there's a few more that I can, I'll read uh, a little bit later. The, I mean the the I, I, mindfulness. I mean, it's, I I want to be clear. Well, okay. So this is just me putting on my. I mean, uh, so the word mindfulness in general, like the word that they're sort of looking back to to reach, um, is the Sanskrit word uh, smriti, which I believe in Pali is like smriti. Is that right? Is that a Pali word, or do you know? Um, anyway, it doesn't really matter. Uh, I don't know. Which like. In Sanskrit, really means like remembering. It's it's where you get like smarta Brahmanism, like remembered, like the the remembered tradition versus the Shruti, like the herd tradition. Um, so so in and it really has a particular meaning, which is um, remembering what's wholesome and unwholesome, or kusala or kusala. Like so, like. In particular, and in particular, and and that's kind of a general term. Like, so when you're acting out in the world, when you're out in the world and and engaging in ordinary conduct, like you should have smirti. You should remember like what's good and what's not good, so that you do good stuff and don't do bad stuff. When you're on the cushion, the idea is like you remember. You have this like sense of, um, you know, the like knowing what a good thought is. Um, you know, directed at the enlightenment of myself and all beings, you know, compassion, that kind of stuff versus like, you know, oh, I'm really mad at this person or, oh, I really want to have sex with this woman or whatever. Like those are not good thoughts. And so you have to have this like sense of, um, you know, remembering what is good and what is not good. Um, this became, and I don't completely understand the history here. It's not really my thing, and and I mean, it's interesting. I think it is some people's thing, and those people that I know that do this seriously, um, you know, tend to be pretty good people. But uh, in 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 vipassana specifically, um, like the kind of contemporary vipassana, um, smirti in this sense became sort of like, 
or and this may also connect back to the Thai forest tradition. Maybe you can talk a little bit about this aura. It, it's really like being aware moment by moment of what's going on in your mind, what's happening in your thoughts, so to speak. And that's good. And that's very clearly related to like, you have to have that in place in order to, um, to be able to like recognize, uh, you know, in other, in other words, in order to be able to say like, Oh, this thought is good. This thought is not as good. Um, you have to like have this kind of reflexive awareness of what's going on in your mind moment by moment. Um, which then becomes this sense of mindfulness that gets adopted in the West. And to be clear, there's nothing wrong with that. That's actually really important. I, 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 you know, from my perspective, which is informed ultimately by like Indian tantric materials, um, that's not sufficient. There's like other stuff that needs to be happening or not happening, or there's stuff going on there that needs to not happen and so on. But, um, that's actually really good. And, and if you can do that and you can do that consistently, um, which I probably couldn't. I mean, it's not really my main practice, but uh, it would be definitely a stretch for me in certain ways. Um, that you know, that's uh, that's great. And and people who do that and derive benefit from it, that's great. Um, it's not, in other words, self suppression. Um, and I think it's important to say, like, it, it the the problem from my perspective with mindfulness isn't with that particular kind of mental discipline. It's with essentially the idea that that's sufficient that you don't need to do anything else that that um you know that 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 there's no kind of uh karma and rebirth and enlightenment this whole drama of you know i am a being caught in samsara and in need and and other beings are are caught in samsara and and this is terrible and we need to like not be in samsara in this way anymore um if that's missing then ultimately you're just spinning in circles. You're literally, I mean, that's what Samsara is. That's the, that's, you're, you're just saying stuck in the same circle. Mindfulness isn't the problem. The problem is deterritorialized mindfulness is decontextualized mindfulness. You can just, you can use it for anything. And what do they use it for? A bunch of insanity that hurts you. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. I think this yeah, gets I, back I, into the, Oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Right. So uh, this kind of gets back into, uh, the whole idea that I, my issue that I, you know, I will talk about till I'm blue in the face to anybody who will listen to me is uh, the fact that people just don't take uh, Buddhism seriously on its own terms, especially the uh, moral teachings of Buddhism and what the Buddha taught. And uh, not only that, but the um, relationship between student and teacher and this i think goes back to uh dk what you were talking about earlier with the uh the protestant bias towards texts and i think where it's really at in buddhism the real lifeblood of the tradition is is the oral tradition it's what what happens when the teachings go from the buddha's lips through the air into the ear of the disciple and they take root there, and and this this has been de-emphasized in the Western versions of Buddhism. The importance of this thing, and of course, this the relationship between teacher and student is intrinsically a hierarchical kind of relationship. So that's part of the reason why people don't like it. There's a again a Protestant anti-clerical bias there, and people kind of think that they can uh, figure it all out by themselves by reading the the right texts or the right books or something. So uh there's that too um so the, the this cultural attitude is fairly fairly pervasive and my 
my whole thing that I would like to encourage anybody who's into Buddhism uh, or interested in Buddhism, who is a Buddhist out there, uh, who's a Westerner, to try is take it seriously. Take it seriously on its own terms. Learn what the Buddhist moral teachings are on their own terms, how they fit into the whole picture and how they support the other legs of, of the either spokes of the wheel, I'd say. Actually, that's an interesting point as well. I mean, I would say that definitely within the Tibetan tradition, the student-teacher relationship is really where the uh, a lot of the content is going to come in. Maybe you could say to an extent within Theravada, at least, that the Pali Canon actually is going to be more central to that. But um, what I find, at least with these kind of this, this entire California Dharma approach, is they're not even engaging with the Pali Canon. They're not engaging with any original Buddhist texts. It's typically an engagement with, like, a commentary on a commentary, if that, and they're essentially just picking and choosing the parts that are consistent with the modern, liberal, democratic, egalitarian worldview, and everything that's inconvenient is left aside, and they don't even acknowledge its existence. And I guess partially because, you know, your modern Westerner doesn't really know very much about the actual contents of Buddhism, it's possible for these grifters to come in and sell this notion that Buddhism is this thing that makes you feel good about your 18-hour-a-day cubicle job and that it'll let you have your um, standard, your, 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 your complete whatever you want to do and your jade eggs and everything else. <laughs> <laughs> um, so good, good talk on mindfulness. Uh, let me quote the sutras just really briefly. This is from the Mahasatipatthana Sutta. Uh, called the Great Frames of Reference, and it's describing right mindfulness, which is the seventh of the eight of the eight um, the eightfold path, the eight factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, it's quite brief. And what is right mindfulness? There is the case where a monk remains focused on the body in and of itself, ardent, alert, and mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. He remains focused on feelings in and of themselves, the mind in and of itself, mental qualities in and of themselves, ardent, alert, and mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. This is called mindfulness, right mindfulness. This is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and distress, for the attainment of the right method, and for the realization of unbinding. In other words, the four frames of reference. Um, that's so not what the <laughs> what John Kabat-Zinn is talking about. I'll tell you that much. Yeah, no, of course not. I mean, they they I, I don't actually know what um, what any of these people are on. I, I I do notice that a lot of them have you know like uh, yeah. Well, it doesn't matter. I I. Um, it just annoys me. I mean, I, th I think it's really important to call this out. And I don't mean, to, as you say, we don't want to dogpile on any one particular individual. I, I, I do maintain he picked this fight. But it's not about him. And it's not about any one of these people individually. It's about this movement. It's about this, you know, reality that for various complicated historical reasons, um, this is how Buddhism is developed. And, and we hear on this program and 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 i think you know reaching out trying to reach out more um are are saying no this is not authentic dharma this is not dharma maybe at all uh and and it needs to be called out 
Yeah, and I'll reiterate, the point is is not because we want to be better than these people or anything like that. It's it's that the it's the we believe on this call that the that the true dharma is actually a wonderful amazing thing that's like incredibly beneficial, it, incredibly positive so, for people. So people have and like if, this and if they, and if and if the only Buddhism that people get is like jade egg Buddhism, then like they're <laughs> they're, they're they're missing out on something really awesome. So that's that's what we're trying to People have different thoughts on Robert Thurman, um, who was you know Uma Thurman's dad and a kind of important scholar of of Buddhism in in the United States. Um, you know, I I don't I, like I'm not you know he was important at the time. He's maybe less important now or something. I, I don't really it doesn't really matter. But but you know he he I think once I heard someone told me that he said something once. I think is like it's it typical Robert Thurman, but also kind of um, really true and provocative and worth considering. Um, someone was, I don't know, saying something about like, oh, how, you know, how, how can we like how terrible it is or something that, that monks and nuns have taken this vow of celibacy, right? Which I think in a lot of ways are, you know, what, what was going on with the mindful sex thing, like why it's there in the first place is this extreme valorization of like, or I mean, it's just people can't relate to human existence without sex. I mean, there's this insanely sex-driven culture. Okay, so someone asked him this question, and this was maybe at least 20 years ago. Um, and he says, you're looking at this wrong. He says, and again, this is a paraphrase of a paraphrase because I wasn't there, but I, I, I trust this story and it sounds like him. <laughs> he said, monks and nuns, you know, when they're doing meditation, it's like 8,000 orgasms happening simultaneously every minute that they're doing it. And what would you rather, you know, when enlightenment, like when you actually finally achieve the final goal, the end goal, that that's like, it's like you're just a constant blissed out or, I mean, in addition to everything, there's incredible clarity. It's not like you can, can't, on the contrary, you're able to focus on anything. You're able to know anything you want. But simultaneously with that, there's an extreme experience of great bliss, orgasmic, in, you know, intense orgasmic bliss every moment. So it's not like... I think there's there's is quite there's something absolutely true about what Storm was saying that it's evil, and I don't mean to dispute that at all. I'm, I, I agree. Um, part of the evilness of it is that not only are you selling people this this sham, this fraud, this uh, this second or third or eighth rate, you know, just just like this idea that oh we you know we get the right amount of cummy you can have your cummies and your enlightenment too, and just do the cummies and do it with this enlightened thing and. Like, so not only is that hurting people and leading them astray, if you were to lead them correctly, if you were to like actually participate in the authentic tradition and the end result of that, you would get bliss far in excess of whatever it is that your threesome or your BDSM porn or whatever the fuck is going to give you. Like, you want that? That's there. It's in the tradition. Like, there are methods for that. And that's the goal. That's what happens when you reach the goal. So if that's what you want. Like, do it the right way. Yep. Uh, a couple more comments. Bjorn says, these people don't want any spiritual path that would tell them they're doing something wrong. They only want something that tells them their liberal priors and degeneracy is okay or even sacred. Amen to that. Yogurt comments, being the villain in your own story is unacceptable. Perpetual childhood mixed with hardcore addiction. Agree again. <laughs> Will. <laughs> LMAO, how a daily mindfulness practice can enhance your experience slamming slamming hole, I think he was going to say. Um, Evolian Archiver asks, is the end goal supposed to be feeling good or to carry out duty? And Storm King quite rightly comments, the end goal is awakening. I think that's right. Uh, and that's also well put in context with what DK just said. 
Yeah, I mean, awakening has like, I mean, there's different ways that this gets talked about in the tradition, but it it's like the union of bliss and emptiness is one of those ways. Like, you know, the union of, of bliss and luminosity or luminosity and emptiness or, you know, the bl bliss, luminosity, emptiness, bliss, clarity, luminosity, non-thought, you know, the absence of conceptual mind, the presence of uh, great orgasmic bliss, so to speak, and, and, and this, you know, total kind of perfect knowledge. These are all aspects of awakening. And, and when you practice, I mean, this is kind of a, um, I guess, a, a more, a, what I would say, you could say tantric, but not in this kind of bullshit, whatever the fuck they're calling tantra, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is what the, what the actual authentic original tantras talk about, and, 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 and to some extent openly, and it's absolutely there. If you connect with a master and you ask nicely and you do, you know, what he tells you and, and, and eventually, you know, establish a relationship, like, you can you can practice these things you can have these experiences you you don't need uh to go down this very dark road of of um participating in global homo techno capitalism um which is only going to hurt you and lim and everyone around you did i did i cut out was was there no i, I don't no no we have we got we're all just speechless <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, it's, maybe, sorry, was, uh, Kagi, you wanted to... Oh, no, I mean, it's, I was going to say, it's, it's kind of an interesting question as to how we ended up here. It, it's, uh, I mean, it, to an extent, it would seem that there's, like, this, this large, I'm kind of suspecting that, because it seems like this, a lot of the Sangha in the United States, I'm sure none of you all have to be told about it, but is dominated by boomers who kind of picked this up sometime in the 70s. And it yeah. brought with them their kind of countercultural notions from that time period. Yeah, it's, it's a sanitized, uh, it's a sanitized rebellion. It, it, they want to be rebellious, but actually, what they're doing is just they're fully in compliance um, yeah. with the current orthodoxy of what you're supposed to do. But they get the the feeling of uh, of being a, a countercultural rebel, uh, which is uh, ironically, this is exactly Kaczynski's take on leftists as well, and it applies. Yeah, to the I, you know. I, I will I will wade into this a little bit. I will tiptoe around, also. Um, but DK was talking earlier about um, suspicious surnames and everything, and without uh, you know, without getting too hardcore or anything, I just when something is introduced from one culture into another by people who don't aren't really tied very deeply on a religious or philosophical or even racial level to um, to either of those cultures, you're going to get uh, these sort of, yeah, sort of globo-homoized um, interpretations of those things. And so it's not surprising to find that there are, for example, there are Christians who have written, like practicing Christians who have written on Buddhism in very enlightening ways, very interesting ways, you know, even if they reject Buddhism, um, they can engage it a certain way. And then there's Evola uh, that we talked about the, for the last few weeks. And um, he's obviously not a, a Christian in the modern sense, but he, he is a you know deeply Western traditional kind of person in another sense. And he also had a very honest uh, and deep take on Buddhism, even if we didn't agree with all of it. But if you get people who are just sort of, you know, they're they're not tied to the land and they're not tied to any rootless, their host culture. Say. A bit rootless. rootless, yes. And they're not tied to their host culture nor to the one they're interpreting, then you're gonna get these sort of, you know, 
um, this sort of meaningless fluff that sounds good on one level, but actually, you know, is just mystifying and is obfuscation on another level. So, you know, you know, like Reddit tier atheists or, um, you know, cultural or, or racial Jews or, or any other group like that, you're, you know, th this is what you should expect to find. And there may be exceptions here and there, but it's, it's not surprising to find that, that, that phenomenon. I don't think anyone should be surprised by that. And that what I'm saying that is not coming from a place of hate or anything like that. I just, it's just an observation that well, I, I think, on, I think on is that, demonstrably on that true question in particular as well. And, and, um, uh, you know, anyway, it doesn't matter. The part of what's going on is when we're talking about California Dharma, we're talking about, um, a certain manifestation of elite culture, right? Like that to the extent that our elite culture is like Satanist, pedophilic, homosexual, et cetera, um, that it's, it's, an, it's it, the point is that Buddhism is high status, has always been high status. Like historically it moves from, from India to wherever, or from India to wherever, to wherever after that, um, like, uh, you know, it moved from India, uh, India to China and then from Zen, uh, Dhyana moved from China to Japan, Korea, and so on. Um, it attracts the elites because it's it's an extremely um, rich, intellectually rich tradition, and and people who are intellectuals, who are philosophers, who are in a sense you could say scientists. Um, there's a very natural appeal, um, and I mean that's certainly what it, what was appealing to me. And the so so when you're talking about California Dharma, what you're talking about is something that is in a sense doubly elite because Buddhism has a high status cachet, and in addition. You know, all these kind of threesomes and BDSM in San Francisco, et cetera, it has a certain high status cachet. So people who um, have insinuated themselves into the highest levels of that elite culture, people who have sort of taken over the cultural um, mechanisms and levers of power, um, of course they're going to be doing the same thing in Buddhism. Right, like it, it, it's again the least surprising thing in the world would be to, would be this phenomenon of, um, you know, having sort of, um, you know, co-opted this these control mechanisms at a sort of socio-political level or an economic level, um, that they would then be doing the same thing, um, in a religious level, and 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 I think like I I, I you know I kind of go back and forth, and I you know it's kind of hard to see because we're in the middle of this process. Um, I think the, I think, you know, from, from sort of like looking at things in broad sweeping historical terms, um, I'm, I'm, I'm very skeptical of the idea that I think Europe is going to survive, but I think part of Europe's survival means Christianity means like a return to some form of authentic Orthodox Christianity. I could be wrong. Obviously I could be wrong, but that's what I think. Um, I, I, I had my doubts or have questions in terms of the United States, I think the situation is different in the United States for a lot of ways. And I think one of the differences, one of the main differences is that the United States um, in a lot of ways is is very, in, in that kind of a sense, uh, rootless. I mean, the, the people are not as connected, even just physically to the land, certainly not culturally, um, the way that in many, many, many places in Europe, you know, you, you still have people who like they have, you know, untold generations of their grandfathers and great grandfathers in buried in a church or, or you know, graveyard very close to where they still live. You just don't have that very much in the United States. And and there's a deep spiritual hunger in the United States. And I think Buddhism what, what I think I think we're witnessing the transformation of America 
of the United States or whatever, you know, this current polity that we designate the United States, whatever it ends up being called or looking like 100, 200, 300, 500 years from now, um, into a Buddhist culture. And so, yeah, I think it's important to understand, like, what is and isn't Buddhism and who are and are not Buddhists and that the people who have up to now in large part been driving the conversation and, and gatekeeping and saying like, well, this is what we're going to say is Buddhism. And this is what we're not, even without any kind of reference to the tradition or to traditional texts and, and practices and so on, um, or, or necessarily having much in the way of a, of a teacher student relationship on their own end, you know, they need to be called out. We need to call out. We need to say like, it is not okay for you. Um, you are not, <laughs> you don't get to decide this thing. Like you're, you know, for various reasons. There's also, um, something I wanted to mention, which is, uh, and I think Kagyu, some, somebody said it earlier about, uh, touched on briefly the, you know, the, the fact that Buddhism is non-white in origins, um, at least in recent historical times, um, <laughs> uh, that, that, that this is part of the appeal for the California Dharma people, because, you, you know, it's definitely not European Christianity, right? Yeah. So it's got the appeal of, of the Oriental and the, you know, and the, Therefore, you can you can sort of get your little spiritual veneer while still sticking to the sort of general white-hating agenda, right? Um, and I notice this a little bit sometimes. I I, I, gen, I I'm lucky. I tend to have pretty peaceful interactions on Twitter. It's mainly probably because I, I never tweet, but <laughs> um, uh, I do notice um, that sometimes, like from the ortho ortho bro side of Twitter, there's just a sort of open mocking um, for Buddhism. And which is fine, whatever. But um, I do sense that some of it's just sort of a reaction of, of like how distasteful it can see it could seem to see like white people fetishizing Asianness and, and pretending that that's spirituality. And I would just note the irony that the people who do who are most attracted on a sort of subconscious level that for liking it for its non-whiteness are also the people who don't even look into the teachings of the actual Asians. And those of us who are on this call, who are not guilty of being that kind of a cuck, are, are the ones who are actually like really interested in what these ancient Tibetans actually had yeah, to say. For, for, anyone who's listening, yeah. for, for anyone who's listening to this, who, you know, maybe skeptical or disagree or who's hate listening or, you know, considers themselves on the left or for whatever reason, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, I, I would love, I would love it if this ended up reaching, you know, people that I would, I personally and us maybe generally on this podcast would disagree with to some extent or whatever extent politically. That's great. I, I just put the question to you and to anyone really, um, who, who are, who are the people who are citing the, like, where, where are the textual citations coming from? Where is the deep knowledge? Where is the deep scholarship? Like who, who is referencing the tradition and, and, and who, who by your own estimation respects the tradition more. Now you can say, I mean, this is, and this is you know, the classic movie. It's like, well, the tradition's just a bunch of, you know, patriarchal white men or whatever men or something and Indian men to, I don't care. You know, it's a blah, 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 sexist and blah, blah, blah. Okay. But, but what you're saying with that is you're, you're saying you don't actually give a shit about the tradition. That's what you're saying. And that's fine. You don't have to. I mean, I'm not like, I, I mean, I do. And I think it's important. I think it would be better for everyone, you know, you and me and everyone. Um, if you did, you don't have to. No one's forcing you. But I think it's important to be honest. Just, just. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you on the concern trolling from people. Yeah, exactly. Shit, exactly. You know? Like, you know, and, and, and just, just look, at, look, at, look at for yourself, look at your own experience. Like, how do these people, how does, how do these people who are selling meditation seminars to Google, like, how, how do they interact with the tradition? And how do these right wing meanie, quote unquote, fascists interact with the tradition? 
I think that's an interesting question. What's Amen, interesting brother. is I think what yeah, I mean, can can they even? I mean, it's interesting because the the other side of this can't sort of get past, ironically, the racial thing, right? They can't get past any of that and just look at it and say, "Hey, this is what it says. Is it right? If I do these practices, does this actually happen? Is this actual good material that corresponds to my experience in nature reality?" There's none of that. That doesn't matter. It's all about uh, the trivial, accidental stuff surrounding it. It's which is hilarious. It. it go ahead. Uh, no, no, you, you first. What does seem interesting is, is to an extent, I think what drew a lot of the original um, pe people, you know, sort of this original baby boom part of the sangha into it was that it was perceived as countercultural to the 1960s United States. But the authentic Buddhism is, in a very real sense, countercultural to the globo homo of today. If you actually engage with the original teachings, you have a real serious alternative to. Um, mindless consumerism and techno capital, and well, that's th that should be as appealing to someone who's disaffected with the modern world. I think. I, I, I want to throw it to RM in a second, but but on that note, I think that's what that's what um, terrifies these uh, rootless individuals who so far have been you know the Tara Brocks and John Cabot Zins and and um, various other suspicious surnames who've been running this conversation for so long is. Um, it's not just it, it's specifically that like what, what we have the potential for and, and increasingly I sort of like it's sort of a let's say a vision of mine that I would like to enact is we we can make a a right wing quote you know let's say fat fa, quote unquote fascist or whatever like a a right wing authoritarian genuine functional Buddhist society we can the United States or whatever the the North American polity can be a, a functional Dharma society. It really can. This is a real thing that can happen. And, 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 in, and in a lot of ways, it's already um, underway. That process is, is, is kind of already happening. Um, but, you know, for obvious reasons, people who don't like one or more of the elements of that, um, you know, perceive it as a threat. And in some ways, it is a threat to their narrow... It's a threat to having child drag queens, I can tell you that. Yeah, much. exactly. And, and, and to their kind of to, 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 to certain kind of narrow ethnic interests, it is absolutely a threat. Um, and and so then the question becomes like, OK, well, is it more important that we um, tend to those narrow ethnic interests or that is, is it more important that we establish a functional dharmic society that is set up for the benefit of its of its population and all sentient beings? Like which of those things is more important? Uh, RM, you you wanted to say you uh, you had something. Yeah, I just wanted to. I mean, speaking to the whole thing about rootlessness and and the uh, unusual circumstances and uh, how the Dharma has been transmitted to the West. It, usually, the historical norm is that it's adopted by a king or or a powerful patrons who. And from there, it kind of spreads down, trickles down to the population in the sense that has been sort of an elite or constituted an elite religious uh, superstructure that, that is. And then there's kind of like a substrate of folk religion. Yeah, sorry. Uh, are, are you are those, trouble here? We got we had some issues again, but we, uh, to rephrase for those of you who maybe had some trouble understanding, and uh, maybe you can <laughs> drop out and come back in again, uh, <laughs> but but the yeah, I think you said something that echoes what I said earlier, and, and is absolutely true. That there's kind of two 
major elements to the transmission of the Dharma into a new cultural or civilizational context. Number one is, yes, there's this, there's typically a king who converts, or at least, you know, aristocratic social circles. Um, and I, again, I think that's what we, we have a certain, we have a financial, social, political elite. Um, and, and many of those people are, you know, either friendly to like, quote unquote, Eastern religion or Buddhism specifically or whatever. Um, and then, and, uh, and then you have folk religious practices, um, and, and various elements of these end up getting adopted, um, into, you know, like, like this kind of pre-Buddhist Japanese practices in Japanese Buddhism, pre-Buddhist Tibetan practices in Tibetan Buddhism, pre-Buddhist Khmer practices in Cambodian Khmer Buddhism. Um, this is all very, very, you know, well-established and, and very true. I, I don't know where, uh, <laughs> I was trying to filibuster a bit. He hasn't, um, uh, responded yet. Uh, I have, what, I have yeah, a, please. Okay. So, um, with the, with the example of Zen in China, it's interesting to note that the tradition survived being persecuted multiple times. Yeah. It would sort of flee back into the mountains and, and it stay near the monasteries. And there was even a time when um, uh, monks and teachers would wear their had to wear their rakusu, which is sort of like a, a bib with a pocket um, under their clothes because they couldn't openly uh, be clothed as if they were part of the tradition. And then at other times, the, the king would have set up a national teacher. And in a lot of the records, there's uh, back and forth between students and other masters and the national teacher. And in China, it sort of it, it never went away. It just sort of ebbed and flowed. It was able to survive uh, lots of power power transitions. So that's interesting. And then an, an part of what gave uh, Zen such a standout character from you know it's kind of unique um, when you look at all the schools together. It's sort of like much more got its own thing. And that kind of came from it being understood through the lens of Chinese folk religion and uh, Taoism, right? They kind of sort of came together and uh, created what Zen ended up being, right? So that's that's just an, a, a really good example of, you know, the king adopting it and, and the folk religions sort of being the substrate for a new strain, if you will. Yeah, I mean, the, the Buddha... That's sorry, how... go on. No, it does seem very interesting because if you actually consider like who's practicing Buddhism in like terms of the deepest level of the philosophy and meditation, it's a fairly narrow slice of any notionally Buddhist country. Like if you look at say Japan, it's there's a heck of a lot more people who might be doing, uh, who, who might be practicing it on a folk level, and quite a lot fewer who are doing things like say meditation in the Zen tradition, for instance. Well, almost no one meditate, and and historically very few people have meditated. Like, that that's part of that spiritual hunger that I was talking about. Um, and, and maybe this is a good note to like end up kind of closing on because I know we're um, uh, running a little low on time. Um, but uh, yeah, the um, meditation is dangerous and meditation is always understood as dangerous. I think I think in a lot of ways, like one of the ways in which you can understand California Dharma as um, how to say in, emblematic of modernity and and our kind of current very strange civilizational circumstances um is is precisely this emphasis on meditation which is not to say you shouldn't meditate you know it, it ab, ab, quite the opposite but the point is meditation is dangerous and meditation can go wrong it can lead you astray this is why it, one of the reasons why it's so important as as ryan Stone maharaja very accurately put it is it's so important to have a teacher someone a human being that you can relate to that can keep you on track um, 
but yeah, I mean, this idea that like, oh, we're just going to kind of go off and like hang out and be, you know, do our like group meditation session and then have like an orgy or whatever. Like th this is, um, this is just ahistorical and, and not something that, that really, it, it doesn't, that's not to say that there won't be, um, I, I think, I think one of the ways in which we may like the, this American Buddhist or North American, so to speak, Buddhist culture may end up shaking out is, is precisely in having more of an emphasis on meditation, um, and, and kind of individual, um, practice in that sense, um, which is good, but it's, it's also necessary. It's important to understand that like I, I have, you know, received, I don't want to, it's not, it's not the brag. It's just to like inform people. I have received, um, you know, many meditation instructions from many like masters that are greatly respected. Literally never once have I heard any of them say like, yeah. And you know, this is all you need to do. Don't worry about all the other stuff. Like, no, it's like, yes, this is great. You're receiving very precious instructions. Um, make sure to do your offerings, make sure to like, you know, practice generosity make sure to practice patience and kindness. Um, in some ways those are, you know, the, you know, make sure to like do this and that. Um, that's always, always, always attached. It's always a part of it. The Buddha himself, you know, he didn't need to meditate. He sat for four hours a day and, and taught people and listened and did various things. And I'm, I'm sure he engaged in various, you know, he helped people when they were in need of, um, you know, some kind of somebody had died and whatever, who knows? The point is like, it, it's not enough to just sit for 10 minutes a day that's not that's good you should do that but it's not enough well said my man i see rhinestones back I, I and i also know we want to wrap things up i wanted to make sure that he had a chance to say anything we got your bit uh rhinestone but well uh where i was going with that was the strange circumstances of the transmission uh of the dharma to the west are that there is no central authority behind it it's just um it's kind of occurred a little bit haphazardly and uh the and it, people would not be have been interested in the dharma in the first place if there was not already a kind of pervasive sense of rootlessness and and dissatisfaction with uh with their own tradition so i think that's why we're seeing this I think that's the main reason why we're seeing a, a rootless quality to the Dharma now, but that's a stage that we'll have to, of course, move past if it's actually going to, yeah. going to build a, a long-term foundation. Now that remains to be seen if, if that's a possibility or not. I think DK, you're a little bit more optimistic about that than I am. <laughs> Maybe, I mean, I yeah. Well, I like, look, we could easily descend into Mad Max. Uh, you know, we mentioned the graph <laughs> earlier and, and that's certainly a possibility, but I, I, I guess part of it is a certain natural optimism that I didn't really realize I had, but, but also just, I, I, I think people tend to be resilient. I think, um, and I think that, I mean, I, you know, I'm here because I think the Dharma is true. I think the Buddhist teachings are true. And I think, you know, if there's enough of us, which, you know, we, we're growing and there are more of us every day. Um, you know, as long as we, as long as we do the practices correctly and maintain discipline correctly and, you know, speak the truth, I, I I do I think that this is going to end okay. I think I think that I think that there is um, a light at the end of the tunnel. I think there is an a genuine authentic Dharma and a Dharmic civilization, a new Western Dharmic civilization that we can create on the other side of this. I, I do genuinely believe that.
And the conditions, the material conditions we're going to be looking at as we approach 2050, that kind of catabolic collapse, slow breakdown, that's fertile ground to establish something new. Also, don't forget that one really uh, high-level practitioner, one person who radiates goodness and um, clarity and things like that can be worth a hundred or a thousand of- Ten thousand, a million, of, six million, money. you know, like- it's, Yeah, uh, it, it really is. Yeah. So so it does, sometimes it, very big effects can can start from, from very relatively small groups of people. Do we have any, uh, there's a, there's a kind of, I don't completely understand, um, Yogurt had a thing, maybe if as I'm talking, you can- um, he says, the, just to conclude, he says, the mercantile element to the methods of transmitting the teachings seem to make it more prone to corruption. Now, I don't completely understand what Well, that, I mean, yeah. I, I guess he's saying how, like, um, I, which is interesting because traditionally, I mean, at least my understanding was Christianity early on spread between sort of, um, between cities, uh, specifically driven by merchants. I mean, the same thing with Buddhism, or, actually. Uh, Yes, and my Marpa, the translator, he was actually yeah. a merchant as well. Yeah. I, I don't actually think that is a problem. I, I, I mean, I, of course, as soon as you get money involved, then there's potential for abuses. But what else is new, and what's the alternative? I, I, to me, I really, um, I don't see that as a problem. And 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 uh, that's not to say that there again that there haven't been abuses. It's just, you know, the, these tre- these teachings are precious, and I think there's there's a greater danger ultimately in our like extreme western protestant specifically like an american protestant or anglo-protestant view on these things where we we're you know we think religion and money like should never mix or something when it's like okay but when you do that what you end up creating is this kind of like first of all you don't have a way to support religious practice and the religious community and the community of monks and so on but but beyond that you you sort of you you divorce it either from any sense of personal generosity on this. Like, a- Asian Buddhists fall all over themselves to, to make big donations. They may not meditate very much. They may have, you know, weird ideas about stuff, but they're very generous. And and this gets pointed out, I've seen this get pointed out all the time, is like, you know, uh, th- 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 there's a kind of failing on our end in the West often that we have this sense of like, oh, I feel uncomfortable um, pay, uh, you know, paying for the Dharma. It's like, well, you're not... It's not really that you're paying for the Dharma. What you're what you're doing is you're expressing generosity and creating the material conditions for the flourishing of the Dharma and lessening your own attachment. And I mean, of course, these can all sound to a Reddit tier Fedora guy as justifications, and and maybe in some cases they are. But it, again, it's also true. Like it is also true that we need to lessen our attachment to money. That monks need money to survive. That if we didn't give the monks money, that they wouldn't be there. They wouldn't be able to provide you know, the services they provide ritually and, and otherwise. Um, like, we're all in, the, you know, this This is why when you talk about Buddhism, you know, you take refuge in three things. You take refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma, and in the Sangha, in the community. And the community ultimately is the, the polity, is the, the, like, political community, is the ritual community. And and we have to have this sense of, of, of all being in it together. And, and this is, again, why I think, like, quote-unquote fascism is, is, a, is, like, a natural fit for a dharmic civilization but maybe that's a conversation for another time <laughs> arm did you like that or did you not like that i can't tell uh, well, I, I, I like that yeah i i like that and i just wanted to add that the reason that uh, the reason that asians are generous and westerners are not is because asians believe in karma and westerners don't <laughs> fundamentally yeah that's a great point yes that is a great absolutely that's, true that's yeah, i mean probably, it's it's why the 
It's like why the llamas are always going to Taiwan because they, those guys jump over themselves to try and try and donate money to come. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's true. Okay, I think that's uh, that's probably enough. I know people need to go. Were there any like closing thoughts, uh, Storm? I know you you like to end with a koan. Um, did anybody have anything they wanted to get in before we leave? No, I'm good. Okay, here we go. So this is again from the uh, the Blue Cliff record. I'm going to read the preceding pointer, and I'm going to read the case. Ten thousand ages abide by the phrase that determines heaven and earth. Even the thousand sages cannot judge the ability to capture tigers or rhinos. Without any further traces of obstruction, the whole being appears everywhere equally. Here is the case. A monk asked Tung Shen, when cold and heat come, how can we avoid them? Tung Shen said, why don't you go to the place where there is no cold or heat? The monk said, what is the place when there is no cold or heat? Tung Shad replied, when it's cold, the cold kills you. When it's hot, the heat kills you. There you excellent. go. Excellent. Excellent. I have That's a good one. We'll we'll uh yeah, excellent. All right. Thank you so much everyone for participating. Thank you um RM for finally being able to make it out. Um Thank you. No, of course. And we'd love to have you whenever we can. Um This has been Right Wing Dharma Squad. We will catch you next time.